Tumor Talks, a podcast about clinical cases in oncology, and we are your hosts. I'm Dr. Kathy Marshall, a medical oncologist. I'm Dr. Beatrice Wills, a medical oncologist and hematologist. And I'm Dr. Jonah Amata, an internal medicine resident physician. everyone and welcome back to Tumor Talks. Today we have Dr. Jeannie Hoffman-Sensis, who is an Associate Professor of Oncology at Johns Hopkins, and she's going to be talking to us about metastatic and invasive bladder cancer. Thanks for joining us today, Jeannie. Thanks for having me, Kathy. It's great to talk to you. So first, can you tell us a little bit about the epidemiology of, of metastatic or advanced bladder cancer? Sure, absolutely. You know, um, a lot of our patients who come into clinic with a new diagnosis of bladder cancer, you know, they often hear about this disease for the first time when either they are diagnosed or somebody that they love is diagnosed with the disease, which is super interesting because, you know, after, you know, prostate cancer and lung cancer, bladder cancer is the fourth most common cancer that's diagnosed in men. It's about 80,000 new cases per year. But, you know, the majority of those are non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that are handled by um, really typically mostly by urology. Um, for patients with advanced or locally advanced or metastatic disease, it's going to be a minority, like about 20% um, that we see. And the histology or the appearance under the microscope is predominantly this urothelial cancer. It was formerly called transitional cell car carcinoma, but now um, majority urothelial cancer. And what imaging is used um, in the workup of patients with bladder cancer? Yeah, there's a couple different things um, that, you know, that can be used. So the majority of patients, I would say, will get a CT uh, with contrast, you know, at least a CT abdomen and pelvis. Sometimes, depending, urologists may do a CT urogram because it's important um, with this disease, especially to get a sense of whether or not this is a tumor confined just to the bladder or um, because we can see a field effect. Are we also seeing tumor within the ureters uh, or tumor that's um, involving the renal pelvis? That's called upper tract urothelial cancer and is a minority uh, of uh, patients with, with urothelial cancer will have upper tract, um, but, but patients can have these co-localized tumors, so it's important to see that. Um, chest imaging is also an important component. Um, typically brain imaging we don't do as a part of our standard first, uh, first look, um, unless someone has symptoms, uh, you know, new onset headaches or you know, focal neurologic findings. Um, in terms of PET imaging, I think it has a role, uh, but because the tracer is metabolized by the kidneys and then excreted into the urine, um, it's difficult to sometimes see tumors, you know, within the urothelial system. Uh, but definitely, if we're working up, you know, a question about cold metastatic disease, I think PET has a place, but but often not a part of our clinical trials, uh, for instance. And you started to mention the pathology. Can you talk about um, other, are, are there other pathologic subtypes or is, is that predominantly what you see with the urothelial carcinoma? Yeah, absolutely. So urothelial cancer is the predominant subtype. And so when we're talking about treating, you know, quote unquote, bladder cancer, we really are referring to that urothelial bladder cancer, you know, but of course you can see urothelial cancer with other subtypes such as, you know, urothelial cancer with squamous differentiation or sarcomatoid subtype. As long as in general for someone, especially with a locally advanced bladder cancer where the plan is for perioperative chemotherapy and then consolidative surgery, 
uh, we really do want to see um, urothelial cancer in the specimen or, or majority. For some of the, the less common pure subtypes, like a pure squamous cell carcinoma or pure adenocarcinoma, there's less prospective data about how to treat them. You know, at places uh, like ours at Hopkins, where we have a very, you know, high volume of, of patients with, with um, bladder and upper tract disease, you know, we have specific protocols trying to address those rarer subtypes, but um, the majority are urothelial cancer. And what about molecular testing or biomarkers? Any, any role for that in, in bladder cancer? Um, yeah, I would say there definitely are, uh, there is a role for the biomarkers, um, but when it comes to making upfront clinical decisions, we, we order the biomarkers and then initial, initiate treatment uh, for the most part. Um, so for right now, for patients with metastatic urothelial cancer, we have the option of using either chemotherapy or for um, a percentage who are not eligible to receive cisplatin chemo. We can use a new combination called enfortumab and pembrolizumab. And despite the use of you know, that frontline uh, therapy that has a checkpoint inhibitor in place, we don't um, necessarily kind of predicate our treatment on whether or not someone has you know, a PDL one positive tumor. Uh, so I would say for the most part, we are gathering that information, but not making at least upfront treatment decisions based on it. We do for patients with metastatic disease do routine, what's called next generation sequencing, in part to determine if patients have um, either a mutation or fusion in the FGFR3 pathway. And that's important in urothelial cancer because it kind of expands our toolkit for patients um, whose tumors will harbor one of those changes or mutations. Then um, a, an FDA approved oral therapy called erdafitinib is you know, potentially on their list of treatments that we can use. Um, but again, because that's not necessarily used in the first line setting, we'll make a treatment decision based on more of a clinical scenario and then gather the information as we go. And bladder cancer is one of those cancers that does require a multidisciplinary group of providers. Can you talk a little bit about the, the timing of um, when patients would be getting systemic treatment versus local treatment and, and some of the decision-making behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the majority of patients that have um, bladder or urothelial cancer, either the bladder or the upper tract, they present with urinary symptoms. So that is uh, gross hematuria. You know, you can see blood in your urine, microscopic hematuria that's maybe found at an annual um, PCP evaluation. We see that sometimes. Um, hematuria that develops in the setting of new anticoagulation, like if someone has a, um, a knee replacement or something like that, we, we see a few of those uh, scenarios per year. Uh, but then also, you know, frequency and urgency without gross hematuria. So those are the most common things. Um, of course, symptoms like weight loss, flank pain, you know, those are indicators of a more advanced or obstructive disease, which is, which is of concern. You know, interestingly, though, Kathy, and I think especially for... Um, you know, a, a general medicine office. When it comes to men with these symptoms, they tend to maybe even have a pre-existing urologist that will check a DRE and a PSA on a yearly basis or they've seen for a different reason. So when they have gross hematuria, their workflow is they often call the urologist and get into the office. Whereas women, you know, women are used to kind of seeing blood in the bathroom. It's not always um, such a shock. And especially in women who maybe have a history of recurrent UTI or other, other issues, they will often present to PCP. 
and have more urinalyses, urine cultures, and courses of antibiotic therapy than men do who are ultimately, you know, in both populations ultimately are diagnosed with bladder cancer. Women kind of have this longer and circuitous route to get uh, to that diagnosis. So I, I think importantly for those women in um, a general medicine practice who have urinary complaints that have been going on for months, unfortunately, sometimes years, um, I think the message would be to involve urology sooner rather than later when, when women have urologic complaints, because uh, they often are not referred uh, early or ever to a urologist. Mm. That's fascinating, important message for, for everybody listening out there. So uh, thank you so much, Jeannie, for this. Um, and we look forward to having you back in the future to talk more about uh, management um, issues in bladder cancer. So thank you again. Thanks, Kathy. Really appreciate the opportunity. So to recap, advanced metastatic bladder cancer occurs in 20% of all bladder cancers. And to remind you, bladder cancer is the fourth most common cancer in men. Some presenting symptoms include urinary frequency and urinary urgency, microscopic hematuria, and hematuria precipitated on new start of anticoagulation. Some symptoms that signal advanced disease include flank pain and weight loss. Some important imaging and initial workup include CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis with contrast, and per neurology, they may add a CT urogram as well. On pathology, we see urothelial cancer as a predominant subtype. We also obtain biomarkers as well, but they're not important for upfront treatment. We obtain an NGS and we look for mutations such as the FGF R3 mutation as it expands our toolkit for treatment. Some important consultants to include in our treatment team includes urology. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Tumor Talks. See you next time. A special thanks to Primo for recording and composing our background music. Tumor Talks is an independent podcast that does not represent the institutional views or opinions of our employers, Johns Hopkins Hospital, Memorial Sloan Kettering, or that of our guests. This podcast is created for medical education and should not be counted as medical advice. 